0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Mindful Minute. I am so excited to share a conversation with you today with one of my personal favorite meditation teachers, Diana Winston. Diana Winston is the Director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA, the author of several incredible books on mindfulness, a former Buddhist nun, and one of the teachers who really helped give words in my in my practice she helped give words to an experience i was really craving in my own meditation practice so today we are going to talk about her newest release this is a second edition of fully present which she co-wrote with dr susan smalley and this book is an incredible look for anybody who's just starting out a mindfulness practice This shares a lot of the science around a mindfulness practice, as well as the experiential how to, what to, why, right? We also talk about my personal favorite book, which is The Little Book of Being. This book invites those of us that have a traditional mindfulness meditation practice To move a little bit deeper, or maybe the word is more expansive, so that we're practicing in a way that she calls natural awareness. So, in today's conversation, we talk about both books. We talk about some of the evolving science around mindfulness meditation over the last 10 years, as well as some of the things that Diana's really seen in the mindfulness world ways that we're seeing what we focus on shift how we talk about the practice and why that is shifting. We talk a little bit about mindful parenting. And of course, we do a guided practice together. This one is short. It is super sweet and powerful. Um, I think you'll really have a good time with it. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation. Diana Winston, it is an absolute pleasure to get to chat with you today. Thank you for taking some time. Yeah, my pleasure. So we are going to talk today about an updated edition of your book, Fully Present, along with one of my favorite books, The Little Book of Being. And before we get into our conversation, I thought maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about your meditative story and background.
1: Sure. So let's see. I got started in meditation right after college. I was I left college very lost, confused. What am I doing with my life? Ended up in India, in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama has the government exile. And I, there, everybody around me was doing Tibetan Buddhist practices, and I was like, No, I'm an activist. This is weird. I'm not into this. I was very skeptical. I remember actually sitting in the back of. I would. I kind of wanted to go in here, so I would sit in the back of teachings and take like a giant chocolate bar and open it up really loudly. <laughs> And be very annoying, I'm sure. But something clicked for me. And I ended up getting like doing a very deep dive. And I think because I was so young and just sort of figuring out like who I was and what was important to me. And this seemed like such an amazing thing to do to meditate and work with my mind and work with my anxiety. And I ended up uh, moving, well, going to Thailand and practicing. I did my first 10 day mindfulness retreat there. And then I um, spent the next decade like in and out of retreat centers in Asia and in the U.S. and practiced mindfulness for long periods of time, like three months at a time. And, and kind of culminating at the end of that period, uh, living as a Buddhist nun for 10 years in a monastery in Burma, Myanmar. So that's where I did like heavy-duty practice for a year of silence and shaved my head and did the whole deal. And when I came back from that, I got... Started to be trained as a teacher and started teaching mindfulness retreats and and but as I so I was kind of a Buddhist teacher for a number of years but I was very interested in how these teachings could be brought out into the world in a more secular way and that I thought that they could benefit people no matter what their background and at that point that was when I connected with the people at UCLA Susan Smalley my co-author of this book who was she had had her own experience of moving from like very serious scientist with no interest in any of this stuff, going through a cancer scare and then suddenly opening up to meditation and mindfulness and and yoga and I think she became vegetarian, all those things. And she wanted to bring what she had learned back to the university and I wanted to bring mindfulness out in a more secular way and that was kind of our meeting. And since um, 2006, I've been at UCLA running the Mindful
0: Awareness Research Center. Mm. And so your book, Fully Present, was my understanding of it is it was really your vision to bring forth this book that you could recommend to students that felt secular. And because you co-wrote it with um, your colleague, you have both the science and the experiential in it, correct?
1: Yeah, that was the vision that it would be both a scientific you know, an overview of the science, a lot of the scientific issues around mindfulness, and then also the practice, like, how do you do it? What is mindfulness, but with a lot of deep dives into working with emotions, dealing with physical pain, um, relational mindfulness, working, I mean, there's just a whole wide variety, and then a lot of the science behind it, both, both, um, you know, the specific mindfulness studies, but also some of the kind of like, interesting issues related to the, the topics we were looking at.
0: I'm really curious about your students at UCLA. Like is is mindfulness a degree? Are they just taking a <laughs> class? Like tell me a little bit about this. Okay. So we
1: do a lot of different things. We do programs for the community, which means LA. And now since the pandemic, we've gone global and mm. we have students all over the world, but the UCLA students specifically, they um, can take our classes, but we have some four credit courses. So they can get, we don't have a degree program or we're in, we're based in the psychiatry department, but they can do a, they can do like a six week summer course or a nine week spring course on, on mindfulness and get credit for it. And mm-hmm. these courses are now packed, but like we're turning people away because the students are
0: benefiting so much from it. Yeah. I can imagine. That's incredible. So you've just released a second edition of the book. It's been about 10 years, right? Since the book yes. came out. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And there's an afterword that has some of the newer science, some of the ways that the mindfulness world has evolved over the last 10 years. And I'm curious a bit about what's really caught your attention. What are you paying attention to yourself? Well, one of the things that I've been very involved with for the last
1: about 12 years or so has been the training of mindfulness teachers Mm -hmm. and really helping to ensure that these next generations of teachers have the kind of professional skills that they really need to be good teachers because prior to some of the work that I've been doing others as well that kind of like you could do a weekend workshop on mindfulness and say you were a mindfulness teacher I mean there was no whatsoever it was like we called it the wild wild west of mindfulness so I started training teachers through our, a program we have called the training and mindfulness facilitation in 2011. And from that and in com- working with a number of colleagues, we work to develop standards in the field for the, um, the, we have now the International Mindfulness Teachers Association, which accredits 200-hour mindfulness training programs and then credentials people who go through them. Mm. And that's intended also to have like an ethics board down the road and many things to kind of really support the field continuing education things like that so for me i think that's where in my heart is it lies like the thing i care the most about and so what i've seen in the last decade is that there's been there's a difference between how i was training teachers in 2011 and how i'm doing it now in 2022 and i wouldn't say it's significantly different but there are more issues that weren't dealt with back then so for instance Trauma informed teaching has become a much bigger important piece of what what a, a you know a, a good teacher needs to be able to teach mindfulness. So some understanding of trauma sensitive or trauma informed teaching. Issues of accessibility, for instance, like how do you teach to different populations, to populations who have disability, who, who can't hear, can't see, can't. Um, People who are neurodivergent—you know—these are all these questions that are very much coming coming into play for teachers. And then, the relationship of mindfulness to um, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion is a big piece that has grown significantly in my programs and I think in the field. So, um, so there's lots of and and also the relationship of mindfulness to social justice. So I think when mindfulness first was presented it was very much about like relieving your own suffering right we're suffering I'm anxious I'm depressed how do we bring mindfulness to help us with this but I think now there's a lot of interest of you know how do we teach it to in much broader ways to different populations and also the way I see it now it's like it's like it's not just about reducing stress. It's about giving us the skills and the tools and the resiliency to handle the ongoing climate and social political crises in which we're existing in right now. So mindfulness, uh, anyway, those are some of the changes.
0: I love that so much. And, And as a teacher myself, I feel a lot of what you're saying in in what shows up in my classes even. And it's interesting because often I feel like I show up with sort of this dual intention for the class of, I want to help you feel less despairing and anxious and whatever it is that burned out, maybe that we're caught in. And also it can't just be about me on the cushion. Like that's not, that's not the evolution of the practice that I've experienced, at least for myself, and so I, I am very interested to hear you say the same thing i really see that playing out as well yeah absolutely i noticed one of the things that really caught my eye that you pointed out you listed and you just did as well but you listed some of the things that are maybe causes of of concern or points of attention especially as mindfulness has become this like billion dollar enterprise that now exists we start to think um about some of the things. And one of the things that really caught my attention was you pointed out how, at least in the secular practice of mindfulness, it's quite divorced from ethical teachings that would inherently be interwoven when you're studying through a Buddhist lens. So I I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those ethical teachings. And I'm curious if you have found ways to start weaving them into your teaching as a secular teacher.
1: Sure. Yeah. So when you go to practice within traditional Buddhist context uh the the first teaching you receive is teaching well there's two main teachings one you learn about generosity and you learn about ethics and those so when i practiced in Myanmar i would say like 30 to 40, maybe even 60% of the talks that my teacher gave were about ethical behavior. It was mm. like, sometimes I'm like, oh, no, not another talk. on Don't kill. Of course, we can all benefit. But so, so when you're and, and, and in the historical religious context of Buddhism, you have like like the monasteries are in this generosity relationship with the villagers and the towns and cities, so there's so they they offer them food they go an alms round every day to get fed, and there's this whole like intersection of generosity and ethics or moral virtue, right so that is like bottom line Buddhist teaching one o one when it, mindfulness kind of got extracted in this more m- mindful way, as opposed to, for mindfulness, out of Buddhism, those teachings didn't come in explicitly. So that's not to say they're not implicit, because I 100% believe they are. But it isn't what we meet people with out of the gate. You know, we meet people with, are you stressed? Let's try meditation. Here's what works. So, So to answer the second part of your question, I've been, I mean, on one hand, training teachers, we we spend a lot of time on ethics and having their own professional ethics and how do they, not their own, but one that like suits, you know, serves the field. Right. So, so we're very much like trying to support them. And, and I have seen that many, many teachers, I wouldn't say a hundred percent, but most teachers tend to be ethical people who are embodying these qualities of ethics and kind of giving that, like that energy <laughs> energetically, but I don't want to say it like that, but, giving it to the students, right? They're embodying it and that's what they're modeling and that's what the students are saying, seeing. And there's a whole movement within the mindfulness field to think about like, how do we teach ethics? And so we've done that. I've done, I've taught a whole bunch of courses on mindfulness and ethics that are based on the Buddha's five precepts, which seem to, you know, people really like because they want to know like, how does this apply to daily life? It's really about behavior, but I'm very specifically teaching it and saying like, this is not because I teach in academia, I can't be like, this is what you have to do. You cannot kill, you cannot steal. But here's what they think in Buddhism. Here's what, how it's aligned with mindfulness. You know, go for it practice. So I think it's, it's, finding, it's weaving in in different ways.
0: Yeah, I do. It's interesting, because I, I very much feel the implicit teachings. And I saw I even noted there's one study or a couple studies that you and your colleague highlighted, that showed this at least increased tendency towards kindness in general from meditators versus non meditators, which is so lovely and promising. And may we all meditate (laughs) (laughs) and exhibit that kindness. But as I was reading that I started thinking in my own teaching, how much do I explicitly talk about ethics? And I don't really know that I do. So I was really grateful for that little nudge to pay attention to what I'm what I'm assuming people take from the practice and how we might benefit by hearing it said. Absolutely. And I'm happy to share some of the curriculum on it
1: if you want to see it. I would love to talk <laughs> to you about it. For sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So if it's okay with you, I want to take a pivot to a book that was published a little while ago, The Little Book of Mm Being, which um, I shared before we started recording is one of my all-time favorite books. And if you're a listener and haven't heard this from me before, it's the one I recommend the most. Mm -hmm. And the reason I recommend it the most is what I see. And I would love to hear your your take on this. But what I see quite often and what I experienced myself when I started meditating is I sat down on a cushion and I clenched every muscle in my body and I leaned forward and I was like, let's do this, <laughs> right? Like I'm going to do meditation now. And once I get it, I'm going to be here and I'm going to feel this way and move this way through the world. And 14 years later, (laughs) I have considerably understood the difference in what I experience now in my meditation practice versus that engaged leaning in that effortful practice. And so when I picked up this book, I opened it up and I read these words, something along the lines of there's nothing to get and nowhere to go. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) So I would love to hear a little bit about uh, your evolution into this natural awareness that you talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, well, I'm so happy to hear it was meaningful for you. Yeah, you know, this is this is sort of speaks a little bit to an earlier question, like the ways in which the mindfulness field is growing and expanding, like originally, they weren't teaching ethics. And now there are ways you can study that. So there's Mindfulness is a lot of people have experienced and understand it and kind of like the stereotype that's out there, like, pay attention to your breathing, and just keep doing that. And that's what that's what mindfulness is. And some people also know, okay, well, it's also pay attention to your emotions, your mental states, things like that. But there's a whole range of teachings that have to do with much more like you're saying not effortful deliberate mindfulness but a much more open spacious practice that I call natural awareness that is taught it's it's taught some in the southeast asian teachings that they a lot of the other ones come from but it's also taught in the tibetan buddhist teachings it's and you see it in like hinduism in different ways but but it but it's it to me it's part of mindfulness it's so it's instead of focusing in a narrow way we can focus in a wide open spacious way and rest our attention and not try so hard just like you're pointing to and begin to even notice awareness of awareness itself which is not an easy thing to do it's definitely more of an advanced practice but we can. What I've found in in looking at practices over the years is there's this what I call spectrum of awareness, where awareness can be very narrow, it can be sort of ordinary, it can be wide open, just like a camera can take a telephoto lens picture, take an ordinary picture, it can take a panoramic lens, and so our, so there are different practices that we can do with each one. And my, to my knowledge, at the time when I wrote the book and it came out in I guess 2019 there wasn't anything out there in the secular world about these types of teachings they were taught more like esoterically like okay these are the secret tibetan teachings and i was just like no this is this is something that anybody can do they can they, and and in fact a lot of my students were practicing in that way that was the thing cuz i would say okay here we're going to do the practice and students would say well that's what i'm already doing mm. you know so i my goal with that book was to make really accessible simplify and, and like open up people to this m- much more spacious end of mindfulness practice so that's kind of the, the load you down. achieve
0: the goal in my personal opinion <laughs> uh, thank you <laughs> so you ha- in the book you have uh practices that are called glimpses which i love and they're at least my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of it is, is it's really an invitation to almost like, I think of it as layering it into my practice. So I I have not abandoned the way that I sit down and close my eyes. And I do indeed hone in on my breath and I do the classical practice that I have done as long as I have practiced. And somewhere in there, I experimented with layering in some of these glimpses, these little ways and I like that you offer several and say, like, some of these won't work, and some of these might work, and some will work sometimes and not other times, and we get to experiment. The one that really works for me personally, and it still does all the time, is you offer an invitation to sort of take in the visual field, see the things, and then see if you can see, sense the space instead of the things themselves. And every time that works for me. <laughs>
1: All right. I have a question for you. When you say yeah. it works, what does that mean? for you?
0: It means, so for some of them, I'll be like, that feels interesting, or I sense where it's going, but I still feel like I'm um, understanding it through my brain. And with the one about the space, it is almost like a physical sensation that when I visually shift my attention from the physical thing to the space, it's like my internal experience gets broader. Mm -hmm. And so I feel a sense of more like a uh, openness in my practice where I'll just sit, like I get into that, I set into that space, I guess. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm in that versus a thing with the boundaries. That's my, that's the way that I experience it.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that's what we're aiming for is different. I mean, I don't want to get to like, people have all different experiences. Yeah. But that open spacious practice, that's not about the me, me, me doing, doing, and much more, a state of being, which is why I call the book "The Little Book of Being." Like that's that. This is what it, it's a roadmap towards. So, yeah, you got it.
0: Do you have a favorite practice in the of those sort of natural awareness practices? Is there one that jumps out for you?
1: A lot of the ones that I mean, I do different ones at different times, and sometimes I like the ones that like sort of expand out in all directions to so expand out physically, expand out sound, expand out with the eyes, and so. And then just rest in that state of expansiveness. And then sometimes into that, I like to throw quotes or things that are meaningful that sort of turn my mind in that direction. A practice, I don't even know if this was in the book, but a practice I've been doing a lot lately is almost imagining that I'm like a mountain, that there's a mountain, and the mountain is boundless and and has no base or circumference and and that I'm sitting within it and that mountain is presence and you're just resting in the presence and that's really fun. So that's one I've done more recently, but I play with it a lot.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that work. I love that you shared that. And I agree. I, that I had definitely not encountered that in my personal learning or exploring written in such a explicit way, I think. So I I really appreciated those teachings.
1: Thank you. That's great. Um,
0: I'm going to sneak one more question in, and then I'd love of for course. us to practice together. So, one of the lines in your bio that just made me smile so much was that most of your mindfulness practice now is is being mindful with your daughter. Yes, you have like a teenage daughter. Is that yes, <laughs> I have two. I have two little children, four and eight, and I often, <laughs> like daily, I think I didn't know this is why I started meditating, but this is why i meditating. yeah, started you got meditating. it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah so any um mindfulness tips for the parents out there
1: yeah well okay so a couple of them that come to mind first of all the big question we often get people with the caller center and they'll say will you teach my child to meditate and usually i take that as we need to teach you to meditate (laughs) because I mean kids little kids there's a kind of natural quality already about them of just being aware and present in the world as they get older obviously it changes and there's issues with the regulation of you know their emotions and so forth but so the parent parent modeling it is like the key thing for being mindful with your child so What kinds of small practices, so I know being a parent, not much time. That's like the number one thing about being a parent. So how can you find little time, like glimpse practices, little interventions where you just do it on the spot and you just take a moment to feel your feet, take a moment to rest and look, take in beauty, take a moment to feel the emotion arising. I often teach, um, this is in Fully Present, the practice of stop stop, take a breath, observe what's happening inside me and proceed. And just that like under 10 second little intervention can make a difference because parents that, I mean, I don't know if you had this experience, but like probably your sitting practice is different now than before you've had children. Am I accurate? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so it's, so it's like these little glimpses throughout the day to help you stay centered so that you model it so that you don't yell at your kid or you yell at them mindfully and then make a decision to do it differently you know which is another approach one other thing that's just popping into my head that especially with a older kid I think one of the biggest things that I use my practice for with her she's 13 now is when I have expectations of who she's supposed to be and how I want her to be, and then she doesn't meet them, and I get I get triggered, like oh, she's not doing this. I that's that's what I want her to do. That's what I expect. And then that's like a huge practice point for me, where mm-hmm. I stop and I breathe and I sense and what's happening. And then there's something I call like enlisting the wisdom mind, which is once you're no longer like on, at a ten, but you're down to like a three or something, and you can just all right, what's really going on here? Wow. I'm wanting her to be something she's not. I'm going to just pause and remember that my job as a parent is to let her be her right now. I'll try to make her be something. like just, I mean, just the other day, she had to do a, a country report and they were picking all the countries and, and she picked Peru. And I was like, why didn't you pick Thailand or India or Burma? Those are my countries. You know, I was just really, she's like, when I was interested in Peru, mommy, and I could just feel and then breathe, stayed with myself, reminder. And I'm just like, she's her own person. Let her be her. It's not about me. She's not me. And so that's one of my most important
0: practices. That is amazing. I love that reminder. Yeah. I'm in the moment of my biggest practice is to remember that whatever's happening in the moment isn't going to happen forever. (laughs) That's a great one. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so funny because I, from day one, that's what you think, right? You're like, I'm, I'm never going to sleep again. I'll never sleep again. And then one day you sleep and you're like, oh, that's amazing. Then they're, you know, doing their emotional, whatever they're doing at three. And you're like, We're never, we're never going to not have tantrums. My child doesn't know how to regulate their emotions and then they turn four. And so that's been my own personal work, but, uh, definitely. It's a great practice. It shows up in parenting, doesn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Well, this has been lovely. Thank you. Would you be willing to guide a little short practice for us? Sure. Do you want me to do something from like a glimpse practice?
1: That would be lovely. right, so we'll just do maybe an expanding practice. Mm. So just invite everyone, wherever they are, uh, to take a moment to pause and check in. And if you're not driving, you can close your eyes and take a breath or two. And turn your attention to the sounds around you. There's sounds maybe in the room or outside the room, but let the sound, um, see if you can hear as far out as possible. What's the furthest sound you might be aware of? And now notice your body, and you can feel your body present. There might be vibration, heaviness, Tension, tightness, softness. Imagine that you can feel beyond the barrier of your skin. So you can start to, as if your body were to expand out, you can feel out into the space around you. So Imagine almost like a balloon that the body begins to expand and just your feeling sense, like sensing out to the left and to the right. The front and back, above and below. And allow that expandedness to just go as far as you can. Just breathe and really have fun with this. Don't take it too seriously. And now add the hearing in. So we're expanding our body, we're expanding our listening. And we can also expand our visual field. So if you open your eyes and try to look peripherally rather than what's right in front of you, just sort of have a expansive view, taking in the periphery, feeling the expanded body, expanded sound. And just take a minute to rest here, like no pressure, but just be in this expanse. Nothing to do. Nowhere to go. Just be. Notice what's happening inside you. You can always come back to your breathing. Always shut your eyes. We could play with getting expansive and then coming back, to con- contracting to just the simplicity of the breath. So let's just take one breath with awareness. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So... Hope that was fun.
0: That was. Thank you so much, Diana. Mm-hmm. Tell listeners where they can find your books, more about you. I know you teach on a couple different apps, I believe, so we can really find practices with you. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: let's see. Okay. So most of my stuff is on the UCLA Mindful app and at the MARC Center, the Mindful Awareness Research Center, which is uclahealth.org slash MARC. And all my classes and events and upcoming stuff are there. And also my website, dianawinston.com. And then, so I said the UCLA Mindful app, 10% Happier app. And if you're interested in the practices from the Little Book of Being, I have some on the Waking Up app. Hmm. So there's lots of places to find. And I also have a whole course on the different ways to be aware called glimpses of being and that's an audio course and that and all the books are available through my website or through bookshops or amazon or wherever you get your books
0: beautiful i will include uh, links listeners in the show notes so you can find everything diana thank you again for taking time today this is a real treat for me oh so fun great to talk to
1: you thank you
0: Thanks for listening to The Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps others to find the show, and let's face it, we could definitely use more meditators in this world. The Mindful Minute is recorded on Muscogee land and produced with the support of Madeline Day Production Management and Brianna Nielsen Virtual Assistance. To join my live classes, ask questions, or learn more about my teacher trainings, please visit MerrillArnett.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you guys next week.